Chapter 11 of Cripps the Carrier by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 11 Knocker versus Belbull. There is or was a street in Oxford near the ruins of the ancient castle and behind the new county jail, where one of the many offsets of the Isis filters its artificial way beneath low arches and betwixt dead walls, and this street partially destroyed since then, was known to the elder generation by the name of Cross Duck Lane. Of course, what remains of it now exults in an infinitely grander title, though smelling thereby no sweeter. With that we have nothing to do. The street was Cross Duck Lane in our time. Here in a highly respectable house, a truly respectable man was living, with his business and his family. Luke Sharp, gentleman, was his name, description, style, and title, and he was not by any means a bad man, so as to be an attorney. This man possessed a great deal of influence, having much house property, and he never in the least disguised his sentiments, or played fast and loose with them. Being of a commanding figure and fine, straightforward aspect, he left an impression wherever he went, of honesty, vigor, and manliness, and he went into very good society, as often he cared to do so, for although not a native of Oxford, but of unknown, though clearly large origin, he now was the head and indeed the entirety of a long-established legal firm. He had married the daughter of the senior partner, and bought or ousted away the rest, and although the legend on his plate was still Piper, Pepper, Sharp, and Company, everyone knew that the learning, wealth, and honor of the whole concern were now embodied in Mr. Luke Sharp. Such a man was under no necessity ever to blow his own trumpet. His wife, a fat and goodly person, Miranda Piper of former days, happened to be the first cousin and nearest relative of a famous man, Portwine Fermitage himself, and his death had affected her very sadly, for she found that he had provided for himself a most precarious future by unjust disposal of his worldly goods, which he could not come back to rectify. To his godson, her only child and her idol, Christopher Fermitage Sharp, he had left a copy of Dr. Doddridge's Expositor, and nothing else. A golden work, no doubt, but still golden precepts fill no purse, but rather tend to empty it. Mrs. Luke Sharp, though a very good Christian, repacked and sent back the Expositor. If Mr. Sharp had been at home, he would not have let her do so. He was full at all times of large, generous impulse, but never guilty of impulsive acts. It had always been said that his son was to have the bottled half-pipe of gold, or the chief body of it, after the widow's life interest, whereas now Mrs. Fermitage, if she liked, might roll all the bottles down the high street, she, however, was a careful woman, and it was manifest where the whole of this Cote d'Or vintage would be binned away, to wit in the cellars of Beckley Barton, with the key at Grace Oglander's very pretty waist. Mr. Sharp, at the moment, would descry no cure, but still to show temper was a vulgar thing. Now on the New Year's Day of 1838, the bitter weather continuing still and doing its best to grow more bitter, Mr. Sharp, being of a festive turn, had closed his office early. The demand for universal closing and perpetual holiday had not yet risen to its present height, and the clerks, though familiar with the kindness of their principal, 
scarcely expected such a premature relief, but this only added to the satisfaction with which they went home to their New Year dinners. But Mr. Sharp, though of early habits and hungry in proper seasons, was not preparing for his dinner now. He had ordered his turkey to be kept back and begged his wife to see to it until he could make out and settle the import of a letter which reached him about one o'clock. It had been delivered by a groom on horseback, who had suffered some inward struggle before he had stooped to ring the attorney's bell, for Cross Duck House, though a comfortable place, was not of an aristocratic caste. The letter was short and expounded little. Sir, I shall do myself the honor of calling upon you at four o'clock this afternoon, upon some important business. Obediently yours. Russell Overshoot, it is not altogether an agreeable thing, even for a man with the finest conscience, such as Mr. Sharp was blessed with, to receive a challenge upon an unknown point, curtly worded in the wise. And the pleasure does not increase when the strong correspondent is partly suspected of holding unfavorable views towards one, and the gaze of self-inspection needs a little more time to compose itself. Luke Sharp had led an unblemished life since the follies of his youth subsided, he subscribed to the inevitable charities, and he waited for his rents, when sure of them. Still, he did not like that letter. Now he took off the coat which he wore at his desk and his waistcoat of the morning, and washed his nice white hands, and clothed himself in expensive dignity. Then he opened his book of daily entries and folded blotting paper and prepared to receive instructions or give advice, or be wise abstractedly but he thought it a sound precaution to have his son Christopher within earshot, for young Overshoot was reputed to be of a rather excitable nature. Therefore, Kit Sharp was commanded to finish the cleaning of his gun, which was his chief delight, in his father's closet adjoining the office, and to keep the door shut, unless called for. The lawyer was not kept waiting long. As the clock of St. Thomas struck four, the shoes of a horse rang sharply on the icy road, and the office bell kicked up its tongue with a jerk showing extra mural energy. Let him ring again, said Mr. Sharp. I defy him to ring much harder. The defiance was soon proved to be unsound, for in less than ten seconds the bell which had stood many years of strong emotion was visited with such a violent spasm that nothing short of the melting pot restored its constitution. A piece clinked on the passage floor, and the lawyer was filled with unfeigned wrath the bell that had been ringing for three generations and was the palladium of the firm. "'What clumsy clodhopper!' cried Mr. Sharp, rushing out as if he saw nobody. "'What beggarly bumpkin has broken my bell?' "'Mr. Overshoot. Oh, I beg pardon, I'm sure.' "'We must make allowance,' said Russell calmly. "'For fidgety animals, Mr. Sharp, and for thick gloves in this frosty weather.' John, take my horse on the Seven Bridges Road and be back in exactly fifteen minutes. How kind of you to be at home, Mr. Sharp. But the words the young man bestowed on the lawyer a short, sharp glance, which entirely failed to penetrate the latter. Shut out this cold wind, for heaven's sake, he exclaimed as he shut in his visitor. You young folk never seem to feel the cold, but you carry it a little too far sometimes. I must have been about your age when we had such another hard winter as this. 
Four and twenty years ago, scarcely so bitter, but a deal more snow. Snow, snow. Six feet everywhere. I was six and twenty then. About your age, I take it, sir. My age to a tittle, said Overshoot. But I am generally taken for thirty-two. How can you have guessed it so? Early thought, sir. Juvenile thought and advanced intelligence make young people look far in front of their age. When you come to my time of life, young sir, your thoughts and your looks will be younger. Now, take this chair. Never mind your boots. Let them hiss as they will on the fender. I like to hear it. A genial sound, a touch of emery paper in the morning. And there we are, ready for other boots. I have had men here come fifty miles across country, as the crow flies, to see me, when the floods were out, and go away with minds comforted. I have heard of your skill in all legal points, but I am not come on that account. Quibbles and shuffles I detest. Well, Mr. Overshoot, I have met with a good deal of rudeness in my early days before I was known as I am now. It was worth my while to disarm it then. It is not so now in your case. You belong to a very good county family, and although you are committed to inferior hands, if you had come in a friendly spirit, I would have been glad to serve you. As it is, I can only request you say what your purpose is and to settle it. Russell Overshoot and his large and powerful eyes gazed straight at Sharp, and Mr. Sharp, who had steely eyes, the best of all for getting on with, were not very large, but as keen as need be, therewith answered complacently, and as if he saw hope of amusement. You puzzle me, Sharp, said Overshoot, about the worst thing he could have said, and he knew it before the words had passed. I am called for the most part Mr. Sharp, except by gentlemen of my own age or friends who entirely trust me. Mr. Russell Overshoot, explain how I have puzzled you. Never mind that. You would never understand. Have you any idea what has brought me here? Yes, to be plain with you, I have. One of your least, but very oldest tenants, has been caught out in poaching. You hate the game laws. You are a radical, ranter, and reformer. You know your lawyer is good and active, but too well known as a liberal. It requires a man of settled principles to contest with the game laws. You could not be more wide astray, cried Overshoot triumphantly, taking in every word the other had said as a piece of his victory. No, no, thank goodness we are not come so low that we cannot get off our tenants, in spite of any evidence. You must indeed think that our family is quite reduced to the dirt if we can no longer do even that much. Not at all, sir. You are much too hot. I only suppose for the moment that your principles might have stopped you. Oh, dear, no. My mother would not take it at all in that way. Now where have you put Grace Oglander? Impetuous Russell, with his nostrils quivering and his eyes fixed on the lawyers and his right hand clenching his heavy whip, purposefully fired his question thus, like a thunderbolt out of pure heaven. He felt sure of producing a grand effect, and so he did, but not the right one. "'You threaten me, do you?' said Mr. Sharp. "'I think you make a mistake, young man. Violence is objectionable in every way, 
though natural with fools who believe they are stronger. I am sorry to have spoiled your whip, but you will acknowledge that the fault was yours. Now, I am ready for reason, if you are. With a grave bow, Luke Sharp offered Russell the fragments of his pet hunting crop, which he had caught from his hand and snapped like a stick of peppermint as he spoke. Overshoot thought himself a fine, strong fellow, and with very good reason, but the quickness of his antagonist left him gasping. "'I want no apologies,' Mr. Sharp continued, going to his desk while the young man looked sadly at his brazen knockered butt, for he had been at that admirable college and cherished his chief reminiscence of it thus. "'Apologies are always waste of time. You have threatened me, and you have found your mistake. Such a formidable antagonist makes one's hand shake. Still, I think I can hit my keyhole. You can always make your keys fit, I dare say, but you never could do that to me again.' Very likely not. I shall never care to try it. Physical force is always low. But as a gentleman, you must own that you first offered violence. Mr. Sharp, I confess that I did. Not in word or deed, but still my manner fairly imported it. And the first respect I ever felt for you, I feel now, for your quickness and pluck. I am pleased with any respect from you, because you have little for anything. Now... Repeat your question, moderately. Where have you put Grace Oglander? Let me offer you a chair again. Striding about with frozen feet is almost the worst thing a man can do. However, you seem to be a little excited. Have you brought me a letter from my client to authorize this inquiry? From Mr. Oglander? Oh, no. He has no idea of my being here. We will get over that. You are a friend of his and a neighbor. He has asked you in a general way to help him in this sad great trouble. Not at all. He would rather not have my interference. He does not like its motive. And the motive is that, like many other people, you were attached to this young lady? Certainly I am. I would give my life at any moment for her. Well, well. I will not speak quite so strongly as you. Life grows dearer as it gets more short. But still, I would give my best year remaining to get to the bottom of this problem. You would, cried young Overshoot, looking at him with admiration of his strength and truth. Give me your hand, sir. I have wronged you. I see that I am but a hasty fool. You should never own that, said the lawyer. End of chapter 11